And then I'll also jump over to the book of Numbers in just a moment. We've been talking about change. And change is a great topic to begin the year with. We ended last year, last Sunday, teaching you about embracing personal change. You have to get a hold of some general concepts with regards to change if you're really going to enter into what God would want to do in your life in the year 2007. Because unless you come to terms with change, you're never going to begin to apprehend God's purpose or God's promise for your life. And we mentioned to you real briefly just those little sayings. And that is, if, if doing what you have been doing would get you to ultimately where God's promise was, you'd be there by now, right? And you've heard that saying that says, if you continue to do what you've always done, expecting different results, that's the definition of insanity. So all of us need to break insanity this morning, don't we? We've got to break the craziness of thinking, I'm just going to keep doing what I've always done, thinking somehow life's going to be different and it just won't happen. So we're going to have to come to terms with change. And I started thinking about this, and, 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 it, and it may be something I'll expand upon later, But you know, the Bible uses two terms. One is the term related to what we are to do, and the other term is related to what God does, that that at its root level means change. What God does is He transforms. Anytime you see the word transformation in the Scripture, it comes from the Greek language metamorpho, which if you're a biology or science person, you would know instantly that metamorphosis is that which a caterpillar goes through in order to become a butterfly. They change, right? That's the word for transformation. God changes you from who you are and where you're at and what's going on. He changes you into that which is beautiful and that which is purposeful and promise and all those other things. God does that. But our side of the equation is the word repentance. And that too means change. And you won't get to God's ultimate plan unless you begin to understand those concepts. Now, I know what we think of when we hear the word repentance. We, we think of the old sawdust, revival, camp meeting kind of hellfire and brimstone preaching. And you know, truth of the matter is, if hellfire and brimstone gets you to change, praise God. The, the key is not so much the topic, the key is the heart. You've got to understand that things have to change in order to ultimately get where you want to be. Now... For those of you that are on the email loop, I think it was several weeks ago, and I'm I'm getting back on target, so we'll start kicking those out again here in the near future. But I think it was several weeks ago that I mentioned, just in an introduction on an email loop, that uh, Trace was standing by the sink. I don't know if it was an evening. I don't really remember when it was. I remember what you had said. And you you were just working, and we were having a conversation. And I remember you had shared with me at that particular moment something the Lord had quickened inside of you. And, and, and the phrase was that 2007 was going to be the most exciting days of your life. And, and I heard that and I thought, I, I want to grab hold of that. And, and, and the more we talked about it, the more I became convinced that that's not just a, a personal word, but that's a word that you ought to get a hold of. That 2007, you need to believe right now, could be the most exciting year for your life. Do you believe that? That's where it starts. It doesn't start by happening. If you're going to sit there and go, well, we'll see. We'll just sit. I just, I dare God to make this an exciting year. Well, you know what? He, he, he don't care if you double dare him. 
you got to believe first. I was talking on the phone just a couple days ago with Carl Morris. Pastor Carl is another one of our overseers here at Legacy, and we were just visiting, kind of catching up. And just out of the blue, I mean, because a lot of times, you know, we'll have conversations a lot like you would have conversations with your friends. You know, you just have a conversation. But he, but he, but he began to say something to me. He said, out of the blue, I haven't even had opportunity to tell you this. Out of the blue, he mentioned that the Lord had dropped something into his spirit that he just felt like as he was talking to me, he wanted me to hear as well because he felt like it would be applicable to the Baird household. He knew it was for him and his household and his church. And he just said this. He said that the Lord spoke to him and he said that the year 2007, and I want to make sure I get this right, the year 2007 will be the year you've been waiting for all your life. Bear witness in my heart, Lord Jesus. Get that 2007 will be the year you've been waiting for all your life. Do you know that there's always a moment God says yes? He'll put hope before you. He'll put a dream in your heart. He'll begin to speak to you about his future and his plans. And you'll begin to hear that and you'll begin to see that. And there's all sorts of things that can begin to stir excitement and desire, the sense of adventure, and all those sorts of things. And a lot of times because of how long it takes or the timing of it all or how it seems like it's just been delayed or whatever, one of a hundred other things can come into the equation, a lot of times we tend to forget that there is a moment that God says yes. You read all through the scriptures, there's a moment that, that all the biblical characters had a dream or they had a vision and, and they carried it maybe for a good long while, but there was a moment that God said yes to them. This is the day. This is the moment. Now is the time. I, I just, I'm just going to remind you of a few. Nehemiah. Nehemiah was, was a guy that got a burden and he had a vision to restore the walls in Jerusalem. And God began to deal with him with such, with such strength inside of him that that he knew something had to change, something had to be different. And I can't tell you the whole story and all the, the, the intricate details, but, but he eventually moved to build that wall and God used him and God used him to lead a people to build the walls back in Jerusalem as that would be the heart of God for him. There was a day that God said yes to him, but here's the key. Something had to change in Nehemiah's life. Change. You, you aren't going to get to that moment unless something changes. David's another example. David was prophesied and anointed in his early days when he was a young man to be king over all of Israel. You know most of his story. After he got done with his crazy days in the asylum of Saul, he was shot out into the caves of Adullam and it was there for literally decades. He existed and he existed in the most primitive of circumstances the whole while with this dream in his heart, this, this vision, this thing that God had said. You know, that's the thing about the Lord that always amazes me. When, when he puts a dream or a promise or he gives you a word, the thing that sort of irritates me at times is that when it delays, sometimes I go to the Lord and say, Lord, I was perfectly fine until you told me that. I was perfectly happy. I was perfectly content just going along in life, and then you put a dream in my heart, and sure, it excited me. Sure, it encouraged me. Sure, it was something that I longed for and desired, and now you're taking your dear sweet time. Boy, I, I just, why don't you just keep those things to yourself? 
until you're ready to accomplish it. Give me 24 hours notice. It would be a lot better. But that's not how it works. So David goes through all of these things and he has to rule in caves and then he has to rule at Hebron. And finally, decades later, he's brought into Jerusalem to rule over all of Israel. But there was first a vision, a dream, but something had to change in him in order to get him from a sheep field, in order to get him to kingship. We could go on and on. I think of that little lady, and this will be the last one, and then we'll get into it this morning, but that little lady with the issue of blood. Most of you know that story. I just want to remind you, here's a lady that had been bleeding, not to be indelicate, ladies. She'd been bleeding for decades and couldn't stop. Can you imagine? And she'd seen the physicians of that era, and the Bible says there was nothing that they could do, and she had spent all the money that she had. And everyone said... I can't do anything more about it. But there was something inside of her that had a word, that had a, had a vision, had a dream for her personal healing, so much so when she heard that Jesus was in town, she got on her hands and knees in manure-fested streets, and she made her way through all of that in order to, as she said, if I but touch the hem of his garment. And she got a hold of Jesus, and there was a day he said yes. But something had to change. There was something after hearing all the no's and all the negatives, there was something in her that had to arise above all that and said, no, nonetheless, I'm going to step out and I'm going to do something different. I'm going to pursue something different in order to see God do something great in my life. Change is a feature of all of that. And I want to talk about that this morning. In fact, I've entitled the lesson this morning, The Vision, The Vision for Change. And maybe I could give a side title and just call, call it Seeing Your Success. Seeing Your Success. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Exodus. Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to read there and then I'm going to leap over to the book of Numbers. Exodus chapter 2. Most of you know the story of Moses and the children of Israel. And I just want to read you some verses here, and then I'm going to jump over to Numbers. And I'll explain and kind of give you some background. Exodus 2, 23, it says this. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Now turn over to the book of Numbers. And I want to read out of the book of Numbers. It might be good if I just mention, from the time of their deliverance out of Egypt to the moment we now read was about, well, I don't know exactly how long, it was probably... Uh, probably at least several years. It's the same generation that was released. They're standing before their promise, ready to go into the land. Moses, according to the will of God, sends spies into the land to check it out, gain a strategy, and this is what happens. It says in verse 25, and they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. In other words, they had 
they had evidence that their promise or their purpose was great. They had some evidence. Then they said to him, we went to the land where you sent us, and it truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, and the descendants of Anak were giants. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of Jordan. Can you begin to see where their focus is? Can you begin to see that? Yeah, here's the fruit, but let me tell you about this. Yeah, that's a good word, Moses, but let me make sure you understand this. Then in verse 30, it says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. I want to talk to you about a vision for change or beginning to see your success. Now, Scripture tells us in the New Testament that the Israelites were given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The people of God, the Israelites, even the whole Old Testament were given to us in order that we might have before us an example. And that example oftentimes tells us what to do, and it tells us what not to do. And the Israelites begin to explain or show us even in New Testament days exactly what it is we ought not do when it it comes to accomplishing God's purpose or beginning to embrace His promise for our lives. Now there's an old saying that many of you will know instantly and you might want to write it down just to remind yourself of it and I put it on the screen overhead. The old saying goes like this. Most change occurs when a person's pain level exceeds their fear factor. Is that not true? I'll tell you right now, I've visited with hundreds of people down through the years, and I will tell you that's exactly true. People don't want change. They don't want input. They don't want counsel. They really don't want much of anything until pain enters into the equation. And when some pain enters into the equation, and it can be relational pain, it can be physical pain, it can be emotional pain, but something's bringing pain to themselves or to their situation. And all of a sudden, when pain enters into the equation, they want help. How many of you know when the marriage is at the divorce court, that's when we go get counsel? Isn't that true? Sure, it's true. Sure, it's true. When things are falling apart, that's when we want help. It's because pain, pain is a wonderful accentuator of the need for change in our life. Well, just as it is in the 21st century, so it was in the century the Israelites lived in. Because I read to you Exodus chapter 2, which says that pain had come to the Israelites. They groaned before God that uh, their situation was terrible. It was bad. And they wanted out of it. They didn't like their bondage. And who couldn't or wouldn't agree with them? I mean, how many of you know, if you're getting low wages, that's painful. If you're in terrible housing, that's painful. If you have a controlling boss in your life, like Pharaoh was, Man, that, that, that's painful. 
And so God hears their pain and he takes note of it and he remembers the covenant. In other words, it says he remembers the promises that he had made to them as a nation and he begins to activate some things in order to bring them to that place that ultimately he knows will be best for them and good for them, full of promise and purpose and contentment and fulfillment and all the things they want. But here is the key. In order for them to get from where they are to where they need to be, there were some things that were going to need to change. You with me? Some things had to change. Now, this is the part about pain that's fascinating to me. When pain is working in your life, you are motivated to change. I mean, you are motivated to do whatever it takes because all of us are geared intuitively and as human beings to get out of our painful situation as quickly as possible. I mean, if if somebody can't get us out of it, we'll think of a way to get out of it. We'll run, we'll do all kinds of things in order to move out of that painful situation. And and so God raises up Moses, he sends him a deliverer, and it's interesting because because the people at that painful point actually begin to get a, a vision, or at least a piece of the vision, in order to understand what God ultimately wants to do. And when you're in pain, people can get a vision for change. They hurt. Life's not good. They want something to be different, and so they get this vision for change. And so the whole nation of Israel gets a vision for change. Moses comes along, anointed by God. God uses him supernaturally. You know the story. Sends plagues and all sorts of supernatural happenings until finally Pharaoh relents and lets them go. And hallelujah, the day arrives when the pain stops. Praise God. God said yes to that part of the vision. And so they begin, five million of them begin to walk with Moses across the Red Sea. God moves Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He parts seas. He gives them, you know, fresh donuts from heaven. It's called manna. He, you know, he gives them pastry from heaven. Uh, he, he, he brings water from rocks for them. He meets their every need. Is that not cool? God's beginning to assist them supernaturally to help them. But then all of a sudden, this same group of people who have seen all of these things take place in their life, God moved, God helped God intervened. God supernaturally demonstrated his hand. We're not in chains anymore. We recognize it. It's interesting that they get to the place here at the brink of the Jordan when they're ready to go into promise and they see some obstacles. They see some things with regards to hindrances in order to pursue their ultimate destiny and their ultimate purpose. And all of a sudden they say, time out. Time out here. I don't don't know about this. And what I began to see as I just considered the Israelites again was what I see in so many people, and that is they get a partial vision. A partial vision. Now, now I put that on the screen. What's a partial vision? A partial vision is when you see only a piece of the will of God. Now, I, I will admit to you this, that there are times, the Bible's clear on this, that we see through a glass darkly. There are times that God reveals things to us line upon line, order upon order, precept upon precept. And so we don't get the whole thing all at once, and that's sometimes by God's design. But there are other times that God reveals or unveils his dreams or his plans to us, and and we begin to get that, but then by our own doing, we only want to see a piece of it. By our own doing, we we only want to get a, a partial vision. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites, because they understood 
from their forefathers, from their ancestors, that God's heart was to get them to this land, to get them to this place that they were to dwell and function in. The Bible says they were to multiply. And God said to Abraham, through your seed, all the world would be blessed. That was his heart. And so they needed to understand that God's will for them was not just to get them out of their pain, but to get them into their purpose. Are you with me? Listen to me now. Hear me. God's will for your life is not just to get you out of your pain, but to get you into your purpose. You know what people's problems are? It's this. God alleviates their pain, and then they say, praise God. And then they don't want to pursue them on into purpose. And what happens is, if you don't get the full picture, and you decide, well, praise God, I'm out of my pain, you'll be back in your pain before you know it. And, and I can, you know why? It's because all through this process, the Israelites, I decided I wanted to count it up. On five distinct occasions, and maybe more than that, but on five distinct occasions, the Israelites, it says, would murmur against Moses would murmur against even leadership. They'd be, they'd be critical and they would rise up because they would face some difficult moment as they walked through the wilderness or some difficult moment as they were trying to get to the land of promise. And it says that they would cry out to Moses and say, I want to go back to Egypt. Take us. Why did you lead us out of our bondage? Why did you take us? I, it was, we were better off being in our chains than we were now going with God on to purpose. Can I share with you how many times have, have I looked at people, and they may not articulate it, but I can see it rolling around in their mind. They'll say this, I, my life was better off before I met Jesus than after I met Jesus. I mean, you preached Jesus to me and something stirred in my heart and I received him and I started walking with God and he delivered me from my addictions and he broke my bad habits and he cleaned up my my, my, uh, you know, my life and where I was and what I was going. He began to restore my relationships and my marriage. But I tell you, there's other problems that I'm facing and other issues. And as far as I'm concerned, I had it better when I didn't know him than when I did know him. And we've done people a disservice by saying all the time, your life's going to be perfect because it's not. That God will deliver you. Is that not interesting that God supernaturally, they didn't have to do one thing to get delivered from their bondages. But now God brings them to the place where he says, all right, I sovereignly brought change to your situation. But now, if you want to go into promise, you're going to have to do some things in order to get onto your purpose. I'll work with you, but you're going to put some energy to it. I'm just not going to dump donuts on you all the time. I'm just, I'm just not going to do it. You're going to have to arise and you're going to have to begin to participate in this change that's going on in your life. And it starts first with you needing to get a vision. You need to begin to see that particular change begin to happen in your life. Because when the Israelites got to the edge of the land of Canaan, all they saw there were giants. All they saw were obstacles. These guys were too big, too large. We, can, we can't do that. There was only two voices. One was Joshua. The other one was Caleb. We hear Caleb's response when he says, I'm here to tell you, we're well able to do this. Can you see at that particular moment, Caleb's focus was somewhere else. So we need to begin to start this whole series on change, dealing with the vision for it. And, and I've already scratched out where we're going. We're going to be talking about change through February, so get ready to change. We need to change. I don't, I don't care if you're a super saint. 
I don't care if you ripped off your shirt right now and you were wearing the big S underneath, you know. You, you know, you, you, you could tear off your suit there in a phone booth and you're super sane. It doesn't matter. You still need to change. Something God's doing in you trying to bring some change and, and, and transformation to your life. And I have found that when people face immediate pain, in other words, pain is going on in your life at this very moment, what they usually pray is this, deliver me swiftly, O God. Deliver me swiftly, O God. But when they're looking at potential pain, potential pain, what we say is, well, this can't be God. Why, why, why would God lead me into something that has a little pain or something I have to put my energy to? See, the nature of human beings is to avoid difficulty. And we need to understand that if you want to get to the purpose of God, there's, there's going to be moments that you're going to have to exercise your faith, endure some difficulty, get into the hunt, and begin to see his plan come to pass. Now, I want to give you three types of responses right now when people are faced with these difficult moments, with these change moments, even painful moments. I'm going to give you three different responses, and, and I'm going to ask you, just ask yourself as you begin to see these flash on the screen, which one, which one am I? The first group is this. It's those who make things happen. There are always those people who will come up to these difficult moments, these change moments, and they're the ones like Caleb who will stay in the hunt. They'll jump in the arena. They'll battle it out. They'll begin to press on. They'll do whatever it takes in order to begin to see God's change and transformation begin to happen. They're the ones that will walk it out if it's personal. They'll walk it out if it has to deal with circumstances. But they are the ones that make things happen. And when I say make things happen, I'm just not talking about those that in the flesh do this. But they're the ones that have heard from God and they know what God has spoken and they're ready to act on it. They're ready to initiate. They're ready to plunge on in and go in. They're the we are able crowd. We are well able. Those who want to make things happen. There's a second group. The second group are those who watch things happen. Now, I liken this to the guys who will sit up in the stands at a ball game or maybe in their easy chair, their lazy boy at home, and they'll watch a, a sporting event on television. And they're the ones up in the stands or in the easy boy chair right there. They're the ones that know exactly what play to call next. They know, they know exactly what Carolina or Clemson coaches need to do in order to make that team successful. They, they know. They're up in the stands. They'll look at each other and say, why did they call that play? I know exactly what needs to happen in this particular situation. It's, it's the ones who watch what's happening, but they never get in the arena. They never get in the hunt. Oh, they're experts. They just never jump into the thing. They're the ones that know what play to call, know what probably ought to happen. They might even be able to quote the playbook. But, but they never get on the field in order to, to be a part of what's happening. And so, so they just allow things to happen as they happen. And that just must be the will of God. That just must be the providence of God in order for things to shake out just like that. And they just watch things happen. I don't know about you. I just don't want to be a spectator in the stands, man. I want, I want to get on the field. I want to be in the parade. I, 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 I want to give it a shot. But then there's the third group, and the third group are those that ask, what happened? What happened? I'm sorry, these are the clueless. They, they are absolutely clueless. They just, life just sort of happens, and, and when it happens, it's like all of a sudden, it's like, boing, wake up. 
They don't understand how they got there, why they got there, what's going on. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't ask for this. What happened here? What happened? And you've got to ask yourself this particular question right now. Are you going to be that kind of victim? Are you, going to, are you going to be that kind of person that just allows circumstances to dictate which way you go, how you flow, what's happening? Or are you going to arise and get that spirit in you like Caleb and get a vision for the future that is of such proportion you can begin to say, we are well able. What kind of a person are you going to be? And, and I put a question on the screen today that I want you to write down right now and I want you just to carry it with you. You can ask yourself this question all week long. What will it take to see 2007 be the year you've been waiting for all your life? What's it going to take for you to begin to, to institute the things like a Nehemiah or a David or that little woman with an issue of blood or a Caleb or a Joshua or any one of a hundred other characters I could throw out to you? What will it take for this year to be the year that you've always dreamed of your whole life, because I want to remind you there's always a moment God says, yes, yes, yes. All the promises of God are what? Yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Well, as we do that, I'm going to share with you a couple of things. As you get that vision for change, I'm going to share with you just a couple of things I call change killers. All right, we'll work through this fairly rapidly. There's just seven of them. I, I cut it down from 10. And I always try to, I, I, I always hate six. You know, whenever I see six, I always think of six, six, six. So there have been times I, uh, you know, God will quicken six things to me. And I said, Lord, surely there's got to be a seventh one here. I mean, because if the list doesn't have seven, it couldn't be from you, right? Seven change killers. These will be things that seek to keep you out of God's plan for your life. You need to understand there are going to be giants that are going to crop up and, and begin to stand and loom large over your life. And, and I could make a case. I'm not going to go through and make specific application for each one. But as we go through here, I believe you'll see it very quickly that all of these change killers or call them change giants or whatever you want to call them, all of these are typified in the people of Israel as they are considering what it's going to take in order to apprehend that dream, that promise, that purpose from God. And you need to understand as it stood before them, they'll stand before you as well. Number one, the number one change killer I call tradition or I've never done it this way before. I've never done it this way before. Basically, this is a reflection of the past. It's a reflection of the way God has operated in your life, what he has done. And, and tradition is that you automatically assume that because that's the way he did it in times before, that somehow he's obligated to do it exactly that same way again. And this is a change killer because if you don't keep yourself open to what God's doing today, you may not win the battle that's before you. I find it fascinating that when the children of Israel, when it, finally the next generation, when it goes into the promised land, Every city that they come up to, God gives them a different battle strategy for every city or every battle that they're going to face. At no time were there two, two absolutely similar strategies by which to take the enemy or which to move forward. I want to just share with you that, that if you look at something and all of a sudden you say, well, I've never done that before and I don't know about that, and you've got to make sure that tradition hasn't become a change killer to you and you've cemented yourself in a place that you can't go forward. 
Because you know what? In all likelihood, God is going to ask of you to do something that you've never done before. The Israelites had to get this in their system. But at that particular point, they'd been trained, I suspect, after 400 years of enforced labor, they hadn't even thought about any type of change like this. And so God had to kill off a generation in order to raise a new one. And he had to break that tradition out of their life. That's how change will take place. So tradition, a change killer. Number two, fear. Fear is a change killer. And I put to the side of fear, I'm not ready to risk this amount. I'm I'm not ready to step into my future. I'm not ready to step into what God's asking of me. I'm not ready to do this because of fear. Do you know how many people never open up their heart to Jesus Christ? Because the enemy has placed fear in them to such a proportion, they say to themselves, if I say yes to Jesus, this could cause a repercussion or a ripple, the likes of which I don't know that I can sustain, maintain, or get through. Do you know why it's hard to convert Muslims? Why it's hard to convert Hindus and Buddhists? It's because there's going to be a price that's going to be paid just on the basis of a person saying yes to Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that that those that really say yes, God gives them a sustaining grace in order to do that. But you don't have to be of another religion for this to affect you. You can just be a good old American citizen. And you say, you know, if I open up my life to Jesus, he may ask me to quit what I do for employment. He may ask me to to go another direction that I'm not sure I want to go. He may ask me to enter into some things that I don't want to enter into and let go of some things that I really like to lay hold of. And, And there's this fear that begins to jump on people because they don't want to risk what they already have in order to lay hold of what is yet ahead of them. I'll never forget years ago when I was in California and Trace and I and our family were in a a denominational system that didn't value the work of the Holy Spirit and, you know, there were some other issues that arised with that, that there came a moment in our household we had to deal with the question of whether we were going to allow where we were at that particular moment to cause us to maintain or would we risk whatever risk had to be involved in order to seize the future that God would want for us. And and I'll just tell you, fear is a real thing. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that fear isn't real. Man, fear is majorly real. Anxiety and worry. I I, I wish I could tell you that somehow I can give you the pill that, that makes fear go away. But there comes a moment, though, you have to go back and say, do I want to continue to live in in the pain or the frustration or or the going nowhere until finally I, I break through and I eclipse my fears and I begin to press into my future? And fear can be a change killer. There are some people that cannot eclipse their fear. And 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, God hath not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So when that fear happens, know this, that ain't God. That's not the Lord. But fear can be a change killer. Get ready for it. The Israelites would rather stay in a stable wilderness than press through their fears of change. Don't let that be said of you. Number three, I use the term stereotype. Stereotype, or what I put to the side of it is, this is who I am and I cannot do or be anything different than who I am. I want you to listen to me. You can change if you want to. I I, I mean, so far as I know, 
God is the most powerful entity in the universe. And since you're not Him, you can change. He can change you. He can help you. He can work with you. But there are people who say, you know what, this is just who I am. I can't be any different. I can't change. You know, the Israelites had a perception of themselves, did they not? They said, we are as grasshoppers. They never heard the giants say that. The giants never once said, oh, look at them, they're grasshoppers. The scripture says that the spies came back and said, we are as grasshoppers in our own sight, therefore we've become grasshoppers in their sight. You've got to begin to see yourself differently. Now, I'm not trying to cultivate arrogance in you or pride. And and let me just say this, that when it slips over into that, God will nail that right straight to that cross. But there has to be something inside of you that's got to get a hold of the fact that while it's true, you ain't much, but with God in you, you become much. With God in you, there's more than enough of what you need in order to prevail. In, in fact, it's, it's, it's a good little tension we're asked to live under, realizing that if they went in on their own strength to fight these giants, that they would have been slaughtered. There'd have been no chance. They'd have been wiped out. But God in the midst of the camp, hallelujah, God in the midst of the camp, caused them to be greater than any of their giants or any of their enemies. And so we've got to break the stereotypes and the pigeonholing. And you've got to break through all the voices down through the years that have told you you won't amount to anything. You've got to break the voices that have told you it'll never happen for you. Break the voices that have said, well, you know, that's just our family lineage. That's our family tree. And that just you just caught it from the Smith family. That's just how it works. You need to start breaking that stuff and begin to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, I can. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So you've got to break those things. And let me tell you this. I am convinced that God doesn't sovereignly break that. He begins to assist you in changing that mentality. I'm here to tell you, if it was a prayer line, I've been in it. If it was, if it was, if it was something somebody could do for me, believe me, I, I, do it to me. Slap me. Blow on me. Spit on me. Do something to me. I'm... I mean, change me, but change change is that one thing that God allows you to participate in as to whether or not you want that to be a part of your life. So you need to break that. You can change if you want to. God's not going to force you into his promises. He's going to change things and change you. Number four, it's the word apathy. I thought of using another one of those biblical terms, you know, I've kind of changed the terms. For instance, I changed the word, you know, repent or transformation to change. You know, change sounds a little bit better. You know, you say, repent, and people get, whoa, dude, cool, chill, you know. But you say change, and, you know, they can receive that. Well, apathy is kind of one of those words that works that way as well, because the biblical word for apathy is the word slothful. Slothful. Now, a lot of people misinterpret slothful and mean lazy. But slothful doesn't mean lazy. Listen, slothful means neutral. Neutral. Slothful means neutral. What do you mean? I I, I mean, there are moments, if you're not careful, you can begin to say, you know, I I don't know that I care. You know, I've heard people say this about the things of the Spirit. They'll say, well, if God wants me to have it, that's great. If he doesn't want me, I'm fine with that too. Whatever. I mean, I've heard that all my life concerning the gifts of the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. And I'm not trying to be mean. 
But I'm just saying that's really slothful because it's neutral. It's like, well, I don't care. Well, you know, if he wants me, great. If not, great. And, and you're neutral. God asks for your passion. God asks for your desire. The greatest commandment says that we're to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength. That's the number one commandment, Jesus said. And, and, and he doesn't want you to be neutral about his plans or his promises. He doesn't want you to be neutral about the things he has for you. I mean, it's like saying, I don't care, I don't care. I don't care if I'm poor all my life. I don't care if I'm rich. I don't really care. And, you know, we've kind of developed a religion about this that sort of makes us feel like, you know, we're so holy because we don't care. Well, I care. I want to be after God. I want to be after his plans. I want, to be, I want to be on his team. I want to see what he can do in my life. And so we've got to break that apathy or that I don't care spirit. I, I don't watch this often, but from time to time, you know, as I'm channel surfing, I'll hit one of those TV courtroom shows. And, you know, there's all sorts of courtroom shows. There's Judge Judy and there's the People's Court and there's Extreme Akeem and there's, I mean, there's, I mean, I mean, there's so many of them, I don't even know all their names. And, and, and now we can go into courtrooms and, and, and see what goes on. But one of the courts works specifically with young people. And they'll come up and, and they'll go this, through this whole thing. And usually they're incorrigible children who aren't responding to their parents. And they're in constant trouble. The parents have reached the place where, you know, they don't know what to do with them anymore. And so, so if you'll let me do the Michael Rowan kind of stance here. Because, you know, they'll have the child over there. They'll be 14, 15, 16 years old standing before the judge. And, you know, they'll be the... And the judge will go, do you not see this? Do you not see your drug usage? Do you not see this? Do you not see that? Do you not see where this is taking you? And they'll go, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And, and there's like something that has been engendered in that generation, like that's cool. I'm cool because I don't care. I'm cool because I don't give a rip. I, I, I'm, cool. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going, to, I'm going to live in a project all my life. I'm going to have to be subsidized by the government. I'm going, I'm, going, I'm, you know, I'm going to be hooked and addicted to everything, probably have a number of STDs going on in my body. I don't care. I don't care. See, they don't even have a vision enough to get out of Egypt, much less get into their purpose. And so what the judge usually do, does is he sends, or she, I think it actually is, she sends them to a camp that awakens them. Listen to me, if you develop slothfulness, God will send you to camps. Because he's the judge. That will awaken you. Because he really wants good things for your life. In fact, sometimes the difficulty that's going on in your life is God's awakening camp trying to awaken you to his goodness. It's the best thing you ever got was that camp. Praise God. But don't go that route if you don't have to. Number five. Fatigue. I'm amazed at how many people won't enter into change because they're just tired. Fatigue. I don't have the energy for this. I can't do this. Don't have the energy for it. I, uh, oftentimes, if I'm visiting with people in my office um, and we're talking about things that have to change in their life, uh, I will use the illustration that I got from Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he has an illustration in there concerning change and how change is like a rocket ship. Now, I want you to imagine watching on TV, you know, a NASA liftoff with one of the shuttles. 
and you all would know the picture when the time, the countdown happens, the time takes, the time ends up going to zero, liftoff takes place, and there's this, this expelling of incredible energy in order to lift that rocket through our atmosphere in order to get it into outer space. And he mentions there that change in our lives is a lot like lifting a rocket off. That the first 20 miles of trying to attempt change, you're going to expend incredible energy. In fact, there'll be a release of energy the likes of which you don't think you can expend and you don't know if you have that much in the tank. But in order for that rocket to get out of the atmosphere and then get up into space in order to accomplish the will of NASA, it's got to expend that energy until it finally breaks through that atmosphere. And once it breaks through that atmosphere, they can shut the energy down and suddenly they just begin to almost coast to where ultimately they're supposed to be. And according to science, and I'm not a scientist, but I know this little bit, that once, once they exercise that amount of energy and break through the atmosphere, it takes less energy to go hundreds and thousands of miles than it took to go those first 20 miles. If you'll hear me right now and begin to understand that when change begins to take place in your life, there's going to be a tremendous amount of energy that you're going to have to put to the equation that you're going to have to offer up to God, that you're going to have to do things you've never done before. You're going to have to implement things you've never implemented before. You're going to have to break habits that you didn't think you could break. It's going to consume your mind, your time, and your energy. But this is the good news. If you'll give him 20 miles of that kind of energy, once you break through, once you begin to see the breakthrough and you move toward the will of God, all of a sudden you'll find yourself not expending near the energy it took in order in order to get you to where you need to be. I'm finding, I mean, I've told you this before. I mean, I, I, you know, I grew up and I dabbled in all of the things that you dabble in. You know, I smoked and drank and did all the things that, you know, teenagers, dumb things teenagers do. And I can remember when I opened up my heart to Jesus Christ, there were many of these things and I had friendships and everybody enticing me. And it was an incredible, it was an incredible battle at times in order not to fall back into old patterns. But I, I'll just, I'll tell you this right now. I drive down the road and I pass a bar and it's not like something's calling to me anymore. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, you watch people light up and smoke and it's not like saying, oh, I died for a cigarette. I died. Give me, you know, there's, you, but you see some energy had to go into that equation. If you want to stop thinking like a clueless person, then you're going to put 20 miles of energy into that and then there's going to come a moment that you're going to wake up one day and say, you know, I'm not clueless anymore. Well, how did that happen? Because you put some energy to it. You put some energy to the things that need to change in your life. But fatigue keeps people out of it. Number six, people are myopic. I decided to throw this word in because it sounded really smart. When you're myopic, it means that you can only see one area. There's only one thing you can see. All the Israelites could see was a giant. That's all they could see. Oh, yeah, they mentioned you know, fruit and land, but, but, but their focus was on giants. You know, there are some people whose greatest life's vision is their next paycheck. They're just thinking about their next paycheck. That's all they're thinking about. There are some people whose greatest vision in life is the next weekend. What am I going to do next weekend? They'll spend all week long talking with all their coworkers about what they're going to do next weekend because that's their vision. That's a, next weekend... 
Sometimes if they're really visionary, they'll begin to think about their next vacation. A lot of people live life that way. All they do is they, 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 they have this very myopic vision that just centers in this one thing. And, and, and you need to understand that God's trying. That's why the Bible said, I prayed it earlier in the service. God says, lift up your eyes under the hills from whence cometh your help. That's why it says to magnify the Lord. Because when you begin to magnify him and you begin to see his plan and his purpose in your life, you will absolutely be amazed at the things he has beyond your paycheck and the things he has beyond this next weekend or your next vacation. He's got a land for you, a promise for you that he really wants you to get into. And then finally, number seven, these are change killers now. Number seven, I use the word survival. Survival. Or in other words, I need to maintain my current status. I need to maintain my current status. I, I watch, and I usually wait until it's gone on a few weeks, but I will watch and kind of pick up from time to time that TV show Survivor. And, um, I, you know, I am kind of fascinated by it. Because Survivor, it's interesting, Survivor, the show, if you've, if, if, if you've ever seen it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you that have never seen it, I can explain it in this way. It's like a human chess game. And, and these people are put usually on an island of some sort or in a remote area. And, and they're playing this game with assorted physical challenges. They, they, they'll divide up into teams. They change it up at times. They'll divide up into teams. And if, if they uh, win a particular challenge, they, that gives them what they call immunity. So if they go at the end of the show, they all go to this tribal, they call a tribal council meeting. And everybody on every show gets voted off. Somebody gets voted off the island all the time until the last person is there and the last person's called the survivor and they get a million dollars and and so the whole show is about how these people navigate through these games through relationships interactions in order to be the one who eventually gets the million dollars and it's it's an interesting show in so much as that you watch the nature of human beings which is i'm not even convinced you can play the game with integrity because you're going to be voted off you have to learn how to manipulate. You have to learn how to leverage. You have to learn how to just control. I mean, there are these, these features of, of how you get through this survivor in order to get to the place where you get a million dollars. And I started thinking about that. And I thought to myself, you know, a lot of people never get on the TV show Survivor, but most of this world and most of America plays the survivor game all the time. Because, you see, most of us think, I need, to, I need to at least maintain my current status, or maybe if I can hit, hit the big time and get the big check, that would be great. But I want to remind you something about Survivor. Aside from the fact that it's a game, and I understand games end and people go on, the fact of the matter is if it wasn't a game, you could do all of those things, you could get your million dollars, and you'd still be stuck on the island. Yes, you're rich on the island, but you're still stuck on the island. And America is the same way. Most people are the same way. They've got a survivor mentality. They just say, what do I have to do to survive? And this is the good news about the gospel. And this is what God says. He says, I didn't call you to survive. I called you to thrive. And the crazy part about it all is, is that if you'll enter into like Galatians 2.20, which says that I'm crucified with Christ, so that no longer is it I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, and begin to realize that if I give my life over to him, whether I live or whether I die, I win. 
When I begin to understand that when I totally yield myself and give myself to his plan and his will, there is something paradoxical that begins to happen and God begins to fulfill his promise that in our, that in our lack of care for survival, he causes us to live abundantly. He causes us to see his hand move in our life. If you abandon yourself to the will of God, I'm going to say this just unapologetically. If you abandon yourself to the will of God, He will move for you. Yes, He will. Yes, He will. But if you decide you're going to thrive and just simply try to navigate a little bit and tweak it at the edges, I'm here to tell you, life life will never offer you the opportunity to get into His great plan or His great purpose. But there was one person who didn't let the change killers get him, and I'm coming in for a landing right now. Hang on, turn to the book of Joshua. And I'm just about done here. Joshua chapter 14. I'm going to read this to you. You ought to underline it in your Bible. And I'm just about done. Bear with me. Joshua 14, verse 6. Joshua 14, verse 6. That first generation that I read to you in Numbers chapter 13 did not get into their promise. They could not overcome their change killers, their, their giants. They, they couldn't overcome them, and so they had to die. God left them to die in the wilderness. He raised up another generation. But amazingly, he allowed the two that could see to survive it. And it's 40 years later. Imagine that. Hear me now. We're not talking 40 days. We're talking 40 years later. From that moment when Caleb said, we are well able, we now pick up with Caleb again. And I want you to listen to what it says, Joshua 14, verse 6. It says, then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Now notice, he brought back word, not as it was in his eyes. He brought back word to him. What? Where was it? You got to get this. He came back from the land and he did not look at Moses and say, yep, giants, problems, obstacles, battles, war, frustration. He he said, "I I spoke to Moses that which was in my heart, which was we can do this. We are well able. We've got more than enough. We're, we're, we're tough enough to do this. He said, nevertheless, my brethren who went with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly, completely, absolutely follow the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. Let me tell you, you want to know how to get into a land? You better underline that verse right there. Verse 10, and now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. (laughs) God always will keep you alive. As he said these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. Yet I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war. I love an old guy that has some kick in him left. Now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain. (laughs) Don't you like some 85-year-old guy there? 
Probably gum, gumming it. Give me that mountain. Give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim or the giants were there and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. It is amazing to me that Caleb, and I'm going to end with this. Listen to me now. This is where you've got to be. You've got to get that spirit on you when it comes to change. Forty years later, he still has a vision for success. He still can see the mountain that God put in his heart that was his 40 years later. How many of us could, could work 40 years, could tarry 40 years and still see that, that mountain that God had promised? And, and the interesting thing about Caleb was this, that he lived in the midst of people that could not see. He lived in the midst of complainers and murmurers. He lived in the midst of those that had poverty mentalities. He lived in the midst of those who grumbled and they complained and they were negative and they couldn't see beyond next weekend and all they thought about was their next vacation. And he lived in the midst of all of this atmosphere, but he had something in him that could see his mountain and he could say, I want my mountain. Give me that mountain. Give me that mountain. Folks, you got to get that in your system. If 2007 will be the year that you've been waiting for, the year that was supposed to be the one that came to fulfill all the heart's desires, you're going to have to get that in your spirit. Last story and I'm done. Cortez was the Spanish explorer. And as he sailed with his armada to the New World, he landed in many places in the Caribbean and in South America. And in one particular location, when he got off the ships and all of his sailors and crew got off with him, uh, there was an uprising. They'd reached the place where many of the sailors wanted to go back to Spain in order to go home and, and, and be where they were. They didn't like the new world anymore. And for all of the things that Cortez was, and there were many things that we could cite him with that were despicable and and uh, sinful and in error. One of the things Cortez had in his heart was he had a, he had a, a vision. He could, he could see what it is that he was after. And he was in the midst of all of these, these people who were clamoring and shouting and, and wanting. And there, there was about ready to be a mutiny in order to, to take us back, get us back to Spain. Or if it were in biblical terms, it would be get us back to Egypt. Take us back. And, and, and as soon as I finish this story, you're going to understand why God closed the Red Sea behind them. Because what Cortez did was one night when all of his crew was asleep, he gave an order to another one to go down to his armada, and he gave the orders. He said, burn the ships. Burn the ships. Kind of a dramatic way to say, they ain't no going back. There's nowhere else to go but forward. That's why God closed the sea behind the Israelites. It wasn't just to cover up Pharaoh's army. When the seas closed, it was at that moment that God said, there's no going back. No going back. And for some of you this morning, that's your problem. You've been, you've been living life like a yo-yo. You go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm going to tell you that your full purpose will never come to pass until you make that spiritual decision, that spiritual moment where you burn your ships and you say, Lord, it got me here. I appreciate it. 
I understand the place those ships had in my life. But those ships now can only take me backwards. I must now go forwards into the will and into the plan of God. Burn your ships. I didn't say burn your bridges. I said burn your ships. There's a difference. God will get you there. Amen? Can you see? Can you start to see your vision? See the change? you got to get it before you. We're going to talk a lot more about what happens if you don't change. We're going to talk about what takes place when you do change and the rewards of change and how do I change. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be here for a while because I'm, the number one issue in God's people is they don't know what it means to change. We think God just takes us like we are and keeps us like we are. The good news is, yes, he takes us like we are, but then he changes us and fashions and forms us and causes us to move into his great plan. And he wants that for you. He really does. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, will you please? Holy Spirit, we give you place this morning. I ask right now that you would come and that you are the absolute initiator, worker, drawer for people to change. Lord, we can teach, we can preach, we can share, but ultimately it's you that's got to get into human hearts. And you got to get through their heart and then you get into their psyche and their emotions and you get into their decision-making capacities. And I ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to do that. Because we don't want to live 2007 out and find on December 31 of this year that nothing is any different, nothing has changed. We've not moved a step. We're exactly the same place we were, God forbid. Lord, I ask right now that you'd work on your people. Talk to them right now. Cause them, Lord, to lift their eyes at this particular moment. In fact, this is what I want you to do right now with every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around. I'm just going to pray right now. If you need the lenses of your life cleared up, if your eyes have been on giants and change killers and you find yourself in the same spot you've been for decades, I, I just want to tell you, it doesn't have to be that way. You can see God begin to move in your life if you're willing to give him those first 20 miles. He'll get you to that star. He'll get you to that place. He'll get you into the land. But maybe it's because you've always kept your options open and you've always kept the ships in the lagoon and you always said to yourself, well, if, if this doesn't work out, I guess I have something to fall back on. You know, we're great on fallback plans. The problem is the Lord wants us to fall back on him, not our plan. And your fallback plan may be actually what you're trusting in instead of the Lord. And this is what I want to do. I just feel like that's the heart of God today. And it's not to put you on the spot, but it's just a willingness to say, Lord, I, I, I need my focus changed. I need to get my, my eyes back on you. And Lord, I, I'm going to demonstrate that. And I'm going to come to the place of prayer right now. And, and I'm going to say, Lord, my eyes are on you. I, I need some change to happen in my life. And if that's you, just come on down. Come on down right now. And I'm going to pray that God will... Get those lenses cleansed and he'll begin to change you. And you need to see life, begin to see life different. And you're coming not just to respond, you know, to my voice, but you got to come and say, Lord, cleanse, cleanse my lenses. Cause me to see. I need to lift my eyes again. I'm, I'm listening. I've got, I've got, I'm living in a crowd. Lord, that just, they always see the bad and the negative and, I, and I'm, I'm going to, 
I may have to live in that. You know, that's interesting. Caleb couldn't be delivered from his crowd. God made him for 40 years live with that crowd. But there was something inside of him that said, despite the environment I'm living in, I am not going to lose my focus. So what you're presenting yourself is for renewed focus right now. Thank you, Lord, for renewing focus in these people's lives. And I want everyone who's gathered, congregation, you can join with me as well, but I want everyone to pray with me together. So I want to hear everyone's voice say this, because to some extent, I'm quite sure all of us could be in this position. But everyone say with me, dear Jesus, I come today before you and I confess my eyes have gotten on the wrong location. I've looked at things that really aren't you and I'm turning my eyes back to you. I confess it was sin. I missed the mark and I repent from that. I, I change from that. I changed from that mentality, that habit, that disposition. I ask for your grace to empower me, to change, to give me the energy to go that 20 miles and get breakthrough in my life and in my circumstance. I choose this morning to believe you. My trust is in God. And I want a spirit of Caleb, which would say daily, give me my mountain. Give me my mountain. I believe it's your will. And I embrace that fully for my life. Thank you, Lord, for clearing up my eyesight. I give you my life again. In Jesus' name, amen. God. Can you say thanks to the Lord real quick? Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Listen to me now. Listen to me now. Faith, faith, listen to me. Faith is not just believing the right thing, but, but faith is now beginning to live your life and acting. Now, I'm not, you know, I, I understand there's timing to everything. You know, you know, change can be dramatic. It can be 24 hours, or sometimes change takes 40 years. Now, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not asking that those of you that might need to change a disposition or an attitude take 40 years to do that. But I, I am simply saying this, that, that God's not necessarily always saying do something super radical, but, but he is saying this, that faith demands that you begin to put feet to it, or you, or you begin to implement those things. So, so tomorrow... It might be waking up in the morning and saying, today is the day that God has made. I'll rejoice and be glad. I choose, no matter what happens to me this day, to smile and to say, God's on the throne. And you know, you've got, you've got to put that energy to the equation. You have got to determine that if somebody comes into a workplace, family situation, marriage situation, relationships, friends, school, you've got to determine right now that the crowd doesn't set the temperature. You have God in you who sets the faith temperature. And you say, you know, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're thinking. All I can keep saying is I'm going after that mountain. Now give me that mountain. Give me that mountain. Give me that mountain. 
You say, well, pastor, that's not easy. 20 miles. You can't, not, not, not just two feet, 20 miles. And I, I'll assure you, you'll, you'll begin to break through in some areas and you're going to find that that's no longer an issue. It's just gone. You'll wake up one day and go, you know what? I haven't felt like that or had that disposition. Or I haven't done that for a while. Amazing. Amazing. When did that happen? You've been giving God your energy. And he's been working with it. Actually, it's really not your energy. He's empowering you, and you're yielding to that empowerment. Amen. He's going to change you. He's more committed first to changing you, and then he'll change your circumstance and your surroundings because he wants you to be like his son. He can give you his will, and you can still be that same old person. But here's the good news. He wants to give you his good purposes and cause you to be a brand new person in doing that. So, Father, the work you've done this morning, seal in these your people. Lord, we make decisions all the time, it seems like. And for whatever reason, they, they get put on the shelf or sidetracked. But, Lord, we break all those bad habits. We break the patterns of the past and how it's happened before. And, Lord, this time it shall be different. And we ask that you'd seal this in the hearts of these your people. That, Lord, they would be tenacious and they would press through. And that 2007 would be that year that they'd hoped for all their life. Lord, let it be so. Let, let just testimonies begin to erupt. How you lead people into that God moment. And, Lord, I give you thanks for doing that. And we bless you as we go our separate ways this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. And we'll give the Lord one more hand clap. Remember, Wednesday night... Wednesday night, we'll see this whole place filled up. I believe that. I believe the young people are going to invite young people, and we're going to bring friends, and we're just going to just blow our minds and just bring a great number of people to the house of God. Wednesday night, 6.30, put it on your calendar, your Palm Pilot, get it on your cell phone, whatever you need to do. But Wednesday night, you'll be here. God bless you. God's going to do big things in everyone's life. God bless you.